0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power now more than ever. Nintex
1: is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating and optimizing business processes. Learn more
2: at nintex.com pressed Marco
1: do you have a really like a red red button in front of you on your desk because is a kind of like virtual
2: it uh, is virtually real it's virtually real hmm. and it is nearly perfect
1: and that nearly what, perfect. what makes something real or unreal
2: uh, I can touch it if I want
1: but are you I sure think... you are touching it or are you just thinking you're touching
2: it I think I'm touching it
1: I think we need help.
2: <laughs> we do need help <laughs> with many things, even the perfection part uh, <laughs> is, uh, I think it's perfect, but then sometimes it isn't so but uh, yeah, what's real what isn't what's now what's future what's yesterday what's today oh, exactly those are, those are many things we're going to talk about today, and we have an amazing guest with us to uh, to lead us on a journey into who knows where uh, in mixed reality and life. And uh, that's Antonia Forrester. Thank you so much for joining.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. And to set up the stage, it is uh, audio Signals, where we talk about books sometimes. Sometimes we talk about topics that are not in a book, but they are like in a TED talk maybe Mm. in this case and uh, we like to go a little bit nuts on the future (laughs) but uh, we can get into the future I think if we don't start from the past which is the beginning of every story so we would like to hear what is the beginning of your story who are you
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, So my name is Antonia and um, my background is actually in zoology and in animal behavior. So not in computer science at all. Um, I worked in a lot of different places like zoos and science centers and a planetarium. And eventually I taught myself how to code. And I realized that I was programming for This 3D planetarium, which is a spherical real space. It's a 12 meter dome. And it's the only 3D planetarium in the UK. And I realized that if I could code for that, which was 3D spherical content, I could probably do VR, which is also 3D spherical content. So I learned a program called Unity, which was freely available. And I used free online resources like um, YouTube. I think I bought a course on Udemy for very inexpensive. Um, And then learned how to create VR and AR as well. So VR being virtual reality, when you put on a headset and you can look around and move around in a virtual world, uh, and AR being augmented reality, which is where you see the real world with things augmented on top. So for example, using your mobile device to look around the real world, but to find virtual animals or uh, objects. And I went from that to um, various different technical roles. And I'm now the uh, senior XR technical specialist at Unity, which is um, the organization that makes the, the software that I taught myself to use.
1: So you, you just said this, like, I wanted a coffee and I learned how to make a coffee. <laughs> grow the
2: beans, grow the soil.
1: <laughs> Except what? that you're not just getting a machine. The toddler stuff, <laughs> uh, how, to, how to grow it. And it's like, yeah, I just did this and I jumped from zoology <laughs> to this. And I, I, I love it. I I think you build, it. It's probably in tune with this, you, you build... The world that you want to live in, and mm. this may be, this may be the philosophical message for this. But let, let's go back to that. Let's let's go back to the moment of jumping from zoology to mm. to this. Was it like a sparkle, like a moment, uh, something that happened that we're like, hmm, this is more my world.
2: And, yeah. And as that... you answer that, because because I'm I'm interested in you said behavior. Mm. And I'm wondering what, as you're making that that transition, uh, what from the behavior part are you bringing with you as well?
3: ah, oh, that's a that's a great question. So, um my specialty actually was in decision making in ant colonies, um which is really a specialist. Um, so I published research in that area. and the thing I was particularly interested in is how individual ants don't have very complicated behaviors. But together, as a colony, they make a decentralised decision. So no one ant is responsible for that decision. And it's very analogous to a human brain. Neurons are very simple. One neuron is just uh, either polarised or depolarized. It's essentially on or off like a light bulb. But when you put billions of them together, then the brain makes these decentralised decisions. There's there's no one single neuron that's responsible. Um, so I was very interested in decision-making and how that spreads through a system and how something can be more than the sum of its parts, um, which I'm still very interested in, especially um, crowd decision-making and aspects like that. Um, the, in terms of the moment that triggered that change, it was... The culmination of a couple of things, um, but the big thing that that sparked it was that I was giving a, a TED talk, actually a TEDx Bristol talk, to two thousand people live, which was enormous, and um, many more people online as well. And it was around um, LGBTQ in the animal kingdom. It was actually a response to hearing people say that being LGBT is not natural and how that doesn't make sense because it is natural, but also it's irrelevant whether it's natural or not. So I wrote this talk and as part of that, I came out to my family and the response wasn't entirely positive. In fact, there was a a very, very negative response in certain aspects. And um, I had to sort of, it was difficult both emotionally, but there were also practical repercussions and financial repercussions as a result of that. I lost a lot of support. So that sparked the change in me for two reasons. First, I wanted to make this practical change and go into a different career path that was maybe more lucrative and maybe there was more opportunity for growth. But also it made me feel that I could try and change the world to be the way I want it to be and and to be better, which I do. I'm a very kind of active um, LGBTQ advocate and activist. But at the same time, it made VR extremely appealing to me because you can build and design worlds that are exactly the way that you feel they should be. You have complete autonomy over what they are and what happens in them and what happens to you while you're in those worlds, if you are the one building them. So it kind of prompted me in a philosophical way to move into this line of work as well as a practical point of view.
2: That's uh, that's phenomenal. And then as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking, wow, this, this is so complex. This message or this story, because what I'm hearing is you want to be who you are, mm. and not have to change for, to please other people. Mm. Um, but we have this world that we can kind of change, maybe to fit in better, maybe maybe they accept us a little more. But none of that's really going to be perfect ever maybe in real life, but mm-hmm. there's this world in virtual slash augmented reality where we might be able to create that. And, and the the thing that I hung on there on the end is you said, if you create it <laughs> and that's yeah. where I go back to full circle,
3: mm-hmm.
2: if somebody else creates it, are we creating a, another world that still sucks?
3: Well, exactly. This is actually one of the reasons I'm really passionate about getting more diverse people into tech and into XR in particular. Um, So XR, to clarify for listeners, uh, means either mixed or extended reality, typically extended reality. And it's an umbrella term. It covers virtual reality, augmented reality, and all other technologies that are between the two or a combination of the two. Um, I think it's really important to have diverse people working in these fields because when you enter, especially VR, you're only aware of the virtual world. You cannot see or interact with really the real world anymore. And if you only have one type of person creating those worlds, we're entering into the imagination or the consciousness of just one type of person, which is potentially very, Narrow, or I mean, there are really diverse experiences. There's so many types of VR content coming out, but I think the more diverse creators we have, the more diverse content we're going to see, which I think is really important.
1: Yeah, and you, you touch on the most important part of it, which is the real, and you know, I'm doing the air quote, or <laughs> um, or virtual it's still a world that we create. We decide what is normal. We decide what is non-normal. We are full of bias all over Mm. the places. We are discovering that with all the algorithm that we have out there. Mm. And as it is, the world that you create, and we've seen in artificial intelligence or in machine learning, if you you feed certain information during the learning process, you are Mm. perpetrating this bias. So even this virtual world, once is not just you in your head, <laughs> it mm. has to be very well balanced and there is no, no questions about that. For the people that are listening right now, let, let, can we get um, a little description from you on what, because I'm sure they heard the word metaverse, mm. but can you help us to understand what it is as we then dig into a little bit more between augmented reality and virtual reality and so forth?
3: Sure, yeah. So a metaverse is uh, a virtual reality space where you can interact with uh, a virtual environment and with other users. So it's any kind of uh, multi-user experience in a virtual world. So you you could count um, a massive multiplayer online game uh, like Second Life as a metaverse especially if it has things like its own currency and you're interacting with real people, um, but you have this either augmented or entirely virtual space. Um, Nowadays, there's this idea that maybe we can create multiple metaverses that you could move between. So you could move from one virtual reality space to another, maybe Um, Maybe in the same program, if anyone's listening has used things like VR chat or alt space or rec room, those are all VR programs where you can go from world to world, from land to land uh, within one program. What would be even more incredible, I think, is if we could move from program to program and keep something with us. So for example, keep our virtual objects with us or keep our virtual currency with us uh, and be able to interact with people in all of these different worlds. So that's... The sort of high-level metaverse dream, I think, for many people.
2: Yeah, and so I, I guess one of the one of the important parts of these worlds, and I'm glad you clarified because metaverse, I was thinking meta is a collection of many, perhaps. Let's <laughs> stick with an individual world because you mentioned mm. 3D before, and I, I presume that's a like a prerequisite to to play in this in this space. Yeah. What other elements are there? That make this acceptable or usable or likable by folks
3: um uh, that's I guess that's sort of two different questions, like what makes something a metaverse and then what makes it uh, an enjoyable metaverse, which I guess are two slightly different questions so yeah,
2: um
3: yeah, the meta in metaverse uh, means beyond, and then universe so beyond your real universe is I guess the literal meaning of a metaverse, and it it essentially is d- defined by the fact that it's a persistent and shared 3D virtual space. So you can leave and come back and it's not transient, you can come back to this place. um, And you can ideally alter it and interact with it and engage with it and and really build parts of it yourself. Um, And I think, being able to share it with other people is important. Um, I think it probably doesn't qualify as a metaverse. I don't know if there's a formal definition, actually, of metaverse. It's used a lot. I don't know if we really... There's one universally accepted definition for what it is. But I would say that most people conceive of that as a, a shared space for, for multiple users that is experienced online in one way or another. So it could be in VR. It could be, as I said, something like Second Life, which is um, 3D but not a not a VR experience. Um what was the other question? Oh, how d- how do you make it um, enjoyable or immersive? Was that the the gist of the question?
2: Yeah, I guess because um, I'm thinking it's very visual, um, and I, I guess are there other elements to it, like feeling movement? Is that necessary for, sure. for it? To, and I don't know if smells part of it or not. Uh,
3: um. Smell, I don't think anyone's really addressed to my knowledge, although I'm sure I'll get a tweet now about like virtual smell aromatherapy. I don't know, actually. Not that I know of, but um, for sure, yeah, visual um, perception is super important. And I think movement is extremely important. So... Um, VR experiences can be what's called three DOF, three degrees of freedom, or six DOF, six degrees of freedom. And all that means is uh, a three degree of freedom experience, you can move your head in three different ways. You can look around, you can look left, right, you can look up, down, and you can kind of tilt your head to the left and tilt your head to the right. And the VR headset will alter the world to match your movement. So that's why it feels immersive. Six degrees of freedom means that on top of that, you can also physically move around. So you can move forward and backward, left and right, and up and down. And again, your perception in the headset will match what you're physically doing so that you don't, if it doesn't match, you'll feel sick. Um, So movement is really important. Um, Interactivity, as I said, is important, whether you're using controllers or your hands. Um, I've worked in the past, specifically in hand tracking. And I think it adds a huge amount of immersion when you can actually just reach out and grab things with your hands without holding controllers. I think that's going to be the future of VR is just being able to interact in a very literal hands-on way. Um, I also have worked in haptics as well. So you can either use controllers or you can use ultrasound arrays, which is um, basically a board with a series of ultrasound transducers on it. And ultrasound is sound that is too high-pitched for the human ear to perceive. But if you fire ultrasound in a very particular way with exactly the right timings, it adds up in the same place in space and time. And the waves add together, which is called constructive interference, and you can physically feel it on your hand. So you can use an ultrasonic array to feel objects that aren't really there. And so, not only you can reach out with your hands and touch things, but you can actually feel them. They won't have resistance; they won't stop your hand from moving through them. But it's a little bit like feeling a hologram or a ghost. You can feel the shape very distinctly, like a sphere or a pyramid. Um, but you can you can move through it. Um, Yeah, there's all kinds of uh, locomotion. There's loads of different solutions for locomotion. I've seen shoes that are essentially like tiny treadmills on your feet that move you back to the same spot so you can physically walk around. Um, There's large versions, like different kinds of treadmills that you can run around and jump on. Um, Typically for consumer VR nowadays, you'd move with a locomotion system, which would be like a ray pointing from your controller or from your hand, and you would just point to where you want to move and click to... or, or. you know, press your hand to teleport. that's the common system right now.
1: So Antonia, let's talk about what you just said. There is the, there is a research and there is the commercial application. And when you talk about this with the, let's say regular people, the everyday user, Hmm. there's always this idea that in the future it will be like this. And then then the researcher gonna say, look, the future is now. <laughs> so mm. uh it's gonna get better, it's gonna be more advanced, but there is already this. So just to break it down in some sim- simple example of concrete example, what what is commercially now available? I mean, I know there are big companies that are investing ton and ton of money on on mm. the goggles and the, the virtual realities. Where are we really standing right now and how fast is this moving?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one thing that is available right now, consumer as well as for business, um, I should be clear as well that I specialize in XR for industry. So I work a lot with um, everything from automotive to manufacturing to aerospace to government to uh, film and media and entertainment to architects and they're they're all using XR as part of their workflow and everyone uses it in slightly different ways. Um, so both VR headsets and AR headsets are um, used and an AR headset has a transparent display. So the one that I'm developing for right now is the HoloLens 2 by Microsoft and it's essentially a transparent set of like goggles and you also have information augmented on there so you can use both your hands to do a task say an engineer is is creating something and you can also have a display augmented on top so you could have instructions or information you could have live guidance um, you could have really anything you want and so there's a lot of industrial application for that it's a lot more accurate than having for example a paper manual with instructions Um, it also means you can guide someone through an experience and VR is used a lot in training in particular. So you can imagine rather than training a pilot for the first time in a mock-up of a cockpit, it's a lot quicker, cheaper, safer, and easier to make a virtual cockpit and train them in that. It's used for uh, medical training. Um, NASA uses VR to train astronauts. Um, VR is used for health and safety training. So yeah, virtual reality, especially there's a lot of simulation and training happening. Um, but there's there's a huge amount going on I mean I'm I'm probably not privy to some of the very cutting edge stuff because I know that you know things are happening in in sort of government and military space as well um, but yeah there's a lot a lot happening in terms of um, headsets getting cheaper and lighter, more accessible, higher resolution and having more um, capability. On the consumer side, the iPad and the iPhone that came out uh, last year in 2020, um, they have LiDAR, which is like radar, but with light. So it shoots out a beam of light and measures how long it takes to um, receive that light back. And in doing so, uh, you can get a very accurate depth map of your surroundings. And so now consumers or businesses can use an iPad or an iPhone to make LiDAR-enabled apps, which means that you can make augmented reality much much more accurate than it was previously because you have this depth map of your environment it also means that you can scan objects so one thing i've been experimenting with is scanning real objects in my home and then bringing those into vr or ar and so i have a a vr apartment which is my real apartment (laughs) which i've scanned uh, and (laughs) i can then edit in vr however i want so it's it's a weird thing
1: yeah I love it I love it and and as we were talking about before starting recording this conversation I'm a little frustrated because as I told you I really get car sick and I went the few times I tried some some goggles on for virtual reality I was really could I had to take it off because I was mm. getting I was getting sick and and I'm wondering um how many people do you think will be able either they get sick or not, I'm thinking also are they affordable or not. How much mm. how um, approachable is this, this concept? Do you see it becoming normal for everybody soon enough as we go into the internet or we go onto uh, social media to actually go into our virtual mm. world?
3: I, I do, actually, yeah, Um, Ooh. for a couple of reasons. So a That was people... the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. You know, I, I work in this space. I think it's incredible. Yeah. I hope everyone um, adopts it. I, I realize there are obstacles to accessibility. So personally, right now, I think one of the biggest obstacles to virtual reality is having the physical space. If you want to engage in a room-scale game, you need enough f- free space in your flat and that's something that personally i found very difficult is to ensure that i always have 2 meters by 2 meters with nothing encroaching in that space not everyone has that luxury uh, another one is time you know it's something that it's much easier to open your smartphone and play a mobile game in a very kind of casual way versus virtual reality where you can't really do anything else while you're in virtual reality. It's sort of all-consuming. You've got a headset on. You can't really see the real world. Um, So if you're juggling a lot of responsibilities, you know, and you don't have a lot of free time, it might not be the sort of thing right now that people want to engage with, you know, compared to something very casual. Um, However, I'll I'll answer your question on emotion sickness first. Um, I've heard a lot of people say this, interestingly, um, but when did you experience it? Like, how recently?
1: Oh, no, there was... A while back.
3: Mm. This is, it's funny. I've heard this from a lot of people and everyone's like, oh, you know, three years ago, four years ago. Yeah. There's um, something around that. Yeah. So VR has come such a long way since then. And one of the things that's really improved is latency. So latency is the the time it takes between your moving and the headset to detect your movement and update what your eyes are seeing. Got and it. the reason you get that sickness is that if your visual input doesn't match your bodily uh, input so your your ears, for example, you can your, your you can detect that your balance is off, but your vision doesn't reflect that. Um, that's when you start feeling sick because your body thinks my visual input's wrong. It must be because I've been poisoned. I've got to get rid of the mm-hmm. poison. Yep. Um, so that's I think I'm not I'm not certain. It's no, to do with I, I did with some research
1: on that too because right. I, even even when you go to a lot of you know if you go to Universal Studios nowadays, mm. a lot of rides are actually virtual rides, and it's upsetting because mm. you know I enjoy those, so I can mm. I can go in in the in the real one. But when it's virtual, it, it, it gave me that that feeling. But what you're saying it can make sense, and I am too excited to honestly try it again. Yeah, Sean, think, how about think... you? Did you try it?
2: You know, I have tried it, and um, I didn't feel sick. I wasn't. This was is probably four years ago now, five years ago. But I wasn't wowed either.
1: Mm. And
2: um, mm. it, it was it was enjoyable and it was interesting. Um, I think it's time we try it again.
3: Four I mean, years you definitely is too
2: long.
1: Yeah. I would
3: definitely say like things have come along so quickly so far. Oh, I know. Um it's, it's, yeah, the graphics are so much better now and i would i would really encourage you to try an experience rather than something at a a theme park so one of the reasons you can get sick at a theme park is you're you're not completely controlling your movement you might Mm -hmm. be in for example like a roller coaster yeah so you have that that 3 off you you can move in three directions but you can't move in all six um if you're able to try something like a game on um a quest two for example a quest two is a vr headset which isn't tethered it doesn't have any wires to a pc it's just you just put it on and that's it you can walk around um, if you're able to try a room scale experience, because your movement matches what you're seeing, mm-hmm. I think you'll feel a lot less sickness.
2: It makes sense. It makes sense. And that, that's that's kind of the one of the things that I was trying to get a feel for in my earlier question on what 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 are the required elements? Cause mm. a lot of what you're describing is you moving mm. in, in the six ways versus something moving you. Right, and I'm wondering because in the roller coaster, you're you're mm. feeling that thing moving you, right? And it can jump and bounce and mm. shake and whatever to give you some additional sensations. Mm. Um, and th- does it need does it need to have that physical movement, or can it be achieved through your own movements?
3: Personally, I think that when VR sort of first came out, everyone was creating like you know. Roller coaster experiences, and if I'm sitting in an office chair and I'm not moving, but my headset is showing me a roller coaster, personally, I feel sick because, you know, it's such a mismatch between what's really happening, and I don't think that's the best experience for VR. I don't think it has to be this extreme, you know, um, movement or you know whether that's visually or actually in terms of the real stimulus on your body. For me, the most incredible VR experiences are actually really tranquil. You don't need to be moving around necessarily. Um, But I think the real key is immersion. If you can really get it to the point where someone truly believes they are in that world and they forget that it's not a real world and, you know, having low latency certainly helps with that. Having great graphics helps with that. Um, Interactivity senses can help with that, but I don't think they should be used in a gimmicky, really over the top way. I think if you can reach out and grab things and feel them, that's amazing. But you don't need to be, you know, shaken back and forth at high G. That That's an experience that, like, some people will love, but you don't need that for immersion, I don't think.
1: Well, um, that steak yeah. may taste so much better in the matrix, right?
3: Mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's, let's talk about this uh, experience versus immersion, and I don't know if that's the right uh, separation or the right words for this, but mm. th- are we... Is is our goal in creating these technologies to provide a world that we immerse ourselves in and live in, and pop out well, of hmm. it, it, into real real life when we want to, or is it the other way around where we pop into these worlds for an experience where we semi immerse to, mm. to? It d-
3: it really depends, explore. I guess, on the on the program and the person making it and every application has a different goal so some games are horror games and you want the person to be immersed so that they're frightened and you know like you want to make them jump and scared and other games are there or experiences one thing vr is great for is it's not just games but different kinds of experiences some of them are there to put you in someone else's shoes and so you'll experience being in the shoes of someone who's gone through an something you never have. And that could, it could evoke empathy or there's a lot of debate around whether that's actually helpful or whether it's um, what's called trauma tourism and whether it's actually cheapens that experience. Um, So that's, that's an interesting debate, but that's a a kind of separate question. Um, I think there's a lot of talk sometimes around this dystopian idea that maybe we'll go into VR and we'll never come out, or maybe um, we won't be able to tell the difference. I don't think that's, Ever going to be true? I think we'll always know that we're in VR because there's some physical weight to a headset you can reach up and touch it and realize that it's there. Um, I don't think it's going to be possible to completely, you know, have a Matrix-style situation. That's that's something that's in the media a lot, but I don't think that's the real danger here. I think there are other ethical dangers and concerns with VR that, that aren't that. Um, but just like any tool, like mobile phones or the internet itself, I would say VR is a tool. And you can use that for really good things. You could use it to expand people's horizons and boundaries and understanding. Um, you can use it for entertainment. It can be addictive if it's used in the wrong way. And maybe people will spend too long in VR in the same way that some people will spend too long playing video games or on the internet, you know, or with any vice, you know, with with food or coffee or anything you could overconsume for sure. Um, but that's not unique to VR, I would say. Um, so yeah, the goal isn't, for people to be in VR all the time, it doesn't sound super healthy. Um, no, but while I mean, they're in it, it should be immersive, I think.
1: But as you said, it's 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 the double side of everything. Everything mm. is every technology can be used for good, can be used for bad, right. Right. and that's many times on the conversations that we have. But uh, while we are here, I I like I'm curious to I don't know if I'm if I'm making any sense, but what if we could no, go back? Not. <laughs> when when do i <laughs> uh what if we go back to the ants colony again and how that Ooh, i wanted to go there yes. <laughs> uh, sorry the nervous system works as a as a as a, as a conglomerate of mm. of actions and decision and it, it almost like if i understand it well it's kind of think like a one brain but it's different right. entities right so what I'm envisioning this, this kind of like place, this metaverse, where a lot of people can conglomerate and, and use their brain power and work together, thinking about a crowdsourcing uh, situation mm. where we can, we don't have to be in the same room or it's not just a back and forth on a, on a, on a chat or on a Zoom call. It's, it's just like using our brain all together to mm. do something good. So Mm. a a global brain, going too crazy here?
3: No, I mean, that's an interesting thought. I I guess the only difference there between existing crowdsourcing apps, because of course, crowdsourcing exists. It was used for the search for life in outer space. It's been used for um, finding a vaccine. Um, Crowdsourcing typically looks like a program that would be sent out to lots of people and um, lots of people would contribute. So it could be something like rotating proteins or protein folding to try and find a vaccine, or it could be something like looking for um, patterns in stars, things like that. So the only real difference, I guess, what you're suggesting is that it would be, it is the input method, essentially. Would people be clicking on things or would they just be neurally interfacing?
1: Yeah, neurally interfacing, that's what I was thinking.
3: So yeah, I mean, neural interfaces exist. Um, I don't know of any that would have multiple inputs yet, I don't see why it's not theoretically possible. Um, but there are interfaces that, you know, you you can control things with your nerves either via, I'm not an expert in this subject, so I'm veering into unknown territory here. Oh, but that's via, okay. Nobody's going to hold via brainwaves <laughs> or um One thing I, I'm more familiar with is there are wearables for the hands that um, essentially track the nerves to discern which fingers you're holding up. But it works even for amputees, even if you don't have fingers. So it can do gesture recognition on a hand. It's sort of like um, a bracelet that you can wear. Um, there's there's two different ones that I know of. There was one developed by Cornell University called Finger Track, I believe, um, and another one by CTRL Labs, who were acquired by Facebook in 2019, if I recall correctly. And both of their devices... Um, Cornell's finger track actually uses tiny cameras, whereas CTRL Labs, is one, looks at the uh, nerve activity in your wrist and arm, and it can do gesture recognition on people who have missing fingers or hands, which I think is incredible. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the sort of thing that neural interfaces can can allow is increased accessibility for people who, for whom, you know, more traditional hand tracking based on a camera probably wouldn't wouldn't work. Um, I hope that vaguely answers the question. <laughs>
1: no, it does. It does. I'm, 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 I'm just thinking. That's why I'm not talking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my, my brain is spinning. I so know. many questions. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, one, one thing, and maybe this is for a different conversation, because you mentioned these worlds are pers- persistent, mm. and and people come in and leave, mm. um, but the the world exists, right? Mm. This metaverse exists, and so in addition to humans creating these metaverses. Mm. Uh, They're also the ones creating the systems and the storage facilities to, to let them persist. And, uh, and with that, all this data that this metadata that we're shedding while we're in the world is collected and and stored Mm -hmm. there. And, and I'm wondering, do we know what's being done to, I'll just say it safely, collect mm. and store this information mm. and not, not use it for uh, malicious purposes.
3: Right. Exactly. That, that is an actual um, concern in XR. Um, so one of the, I, th- I think it's called Colin, the Colin Ridge principle. And the Colin Ridge principle is basically that it's very hard to mitigate uh, against the dangers of technology when it's still developing because we don't know what it's capable of. But once it's been fully established, it may be very hard to change. It's also called the pacing problem. And I think XR is in this space now where it's developing and it's really incredible to see. I think it's it's causing you know much more good than any potential harm, certainly right now. Um, a lot of people are using XR for things like accessibility, for anxiety relief, for pain relief in um terminal patients, for example, it's been shown to have really big benefits there. Um, And just for easing day-to-day life, I think augmented reality in particular is going to help day-to-day life when we have things like, um, you know, like glasses that don't look like headsets, but just look like glasses, which can augment information, can translate languages for us. Um, It'll really help with travel and buying the right products and things like that. Um, But yeah, in terms of data... One of the concerns, for example, is biometric data. When you're in virtual reality, by necessity, the headset and the controllers are keeping track of where your hands and your head are so that your visual input will be correct. Otherwise, you can't have that experience at all. But the problem is if that is kept and stored, um, biometric data can be used to identify someone. It's essentially a biological sort of fingerprint. As well as you know, actual fingerprints, like I unlock my laptop and my phone with my fingerprint. So my my fingerprint is somewhere. Um, And there is some concern around, you know, how is that being stored? And is that being processed in real time and then disposed of, which is much safer? Or is that being stored somewhere and sent somewhere? And so there are groups um, discussing this and advising on policy. So I'm actually part of the IEEE XR uh, ethics initiative, they have a couple of different goals. One of them is to produce white papers. Uh, another is to work in advising um, policy to make sure that these technologies mitigate against risks like that and don't hold onto data any longer than is absolutely necessary. Um, that they dispose of it. That it isn't, you know, stashed unnecessarily. Um, things like facial recognition. There's a kind of similar quandary around because you know we use facial recognition for also unlocking devices and things nowadays so yeah it's some s- crossover with the sort of concerns we have with similar technology and some new ones especially in terms of biometrics
1: and this is the time of the podcast that we have to wrap and i have to say i wish we had few hours or days to keep <laughs> talking about it but mm. I mean, honestly, we could go to, I don't know, I'm thinking sci-fi, space travel, ethics. Mm. Of course, that's something that I would really love to talk more about as we Mm. talk about it with artificial intelligence. I feel like the the, the space are definitely connected. So I do hope that you will come back and maybe we we choose another specific topics around this and we can bring the conversation going. But before doing that...
2: Well, in the meantime, I'm going to because we haven't really aligned ethics and security and privacy to all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to send you on the next virtual ride, and you just tell me how it goes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all Take, right. and
2: collect your data. Also.
1: All right, we'll have, we'll have more information on that. <laughs> but one thing that I do want to end this conversation with is that uh, if uh, if you are OK with that, and I believe you you are, we, we do have on ITSP Magazine, a new channel which had two episodes so far and uh, more are coming that actually does cover in specific the lgbtq and diversity in technology and cybersecurity, and and mm. all this this wonderful story and is run by Chantel and angela and i i would love to hear that other side of your story which is very mm. connected to your sparkle that we talk about <laughs> at the beginning and i just didn't want to, to to steal from that and i i hope that you will have that conversation and uh, our audience will will listen to that as well and uh, until then sean i'll leave you a couple of minutes to to voice your happiness about this podcast because i know you are and, uh, well, and i it's... thank you very much
2: thank,
3: thank you, you. Much. thank you so yes, much
2: absolutely thank you antonia and it it is real uh, pleasure that we've had this conversation, not virtual. And <laughs> uh, I hope hope someday we can actually meet in person. That, that would be mm. a nice thing to do as well. Uh, I think, as usual, we've we've covered many points and raised ten questions for everything we may have <laughs> tried to answer. Um, but that's the beauty of these conversations, right? That we're, we're taking things we forward. Yep. And uh, we appreciate you bringing your knowledge and your work and your experience and your excitement to this conversation. And I uh, hope everybody enjoys it. And if, if they have questions for you, well, your uh, your details will be in the show notes, I presume, if that's okay. And uh, folks can connect on social media and keep the conversation going there.
3: Please do. Yeah, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me and also to see what I'm working on at the moment. Like, it's a whole broad range of stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know so there, there it's was something You didn't want to spill the beans on, so we're not going to let you do that. <laughs> uh, you can do that later.
3: Next time. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com.
0: We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and this story made you think, then share ITSP Magazine with your friends, family, and colleagues.